The battle for Donbass has begun. This week, fresh Russian troops poured into the eastern region of Ukraine in what is shaping up as a major offensive aimed at seizing full control of a substantial slice of the embattled country. At the same time, Vladimir Putin's forces appear to be intensifying their bombardments throughout Ukraine, killing civilians, choking off evacuation routes, and committing what U.S. officials say are war crimes. What is the Biden administration doing in response? And is there any hope left for a diplomatic solution? We'll talk to State Department Counselor Derek Cholet, one of Secretary of State Anthony Blinken's top advisors, and try to get some answers on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isgoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a Senior Counsel at States United. I think it's really uh, fortunate that we've got Derek Chalet for this episode. Um, he has been, you know, by the side of uh, Secretary of State Blinken throughout this whole crisis. He's one of uh, his top advisors, as I mentioned, and one of the few who will go on and speak openly about what U.S. strategy is. The question now, as we continue to see the evidence of war crimes and atrocities, is what exactly is the U.S. strategy at this point? Can more weapons make a difference? Uh, can we wait for the sanctions to take hold and actually have an impact on Vladimir Putin? Or are we looking at a seemingly endless war of attrition? And at this point, I'm not sure any of us know the answer. Yeah, clearly this is a, a new and I think very uh, a dangerous phase of this uh, battle. The military experts think that in pure military terms, the advantage may really shift uh, to the Russians uh, now for a number of reasons. First of all, the Russians have had many weeks now to prepare for this. Uh, as you mentioned in the, in the intro, they've been pouring new troops uh, in. The terrain is is very different. It's much more open. Uh, some people have uh, said it's more like the, the American Plains. And so it's not going to be a kind of um, urban warfare setting that allowed the more mobile Ukrainian forces uh, to ambush um, the Russians. Uh, they're going to have more advantages in terms of logistics and supply lines because of their proximity to Russia. So war of attrition, I think, is is probably the, the right uh, way to, to talk about this. It's, it's going to be a question of how long uh, the Ukrainians can hold out here and how much damage um, they can they can absorb. There is a, a kind of a looming deadline for Putin, which is May 9th, Victory Day, in Russia when they celebrate the Soviet defeat of the Nazis when the Soviet army encircled Berlin and the, and the Nazis gave up. Why, uh, why Putin, is that a deadline for him? Uh, well, because, look, Putin has not had a single real victory in this war, right? They're getting their asses handed to them. It's victory day like July the 4th might be a, like an important day they, here in the what, United States. And, and he needs to be able to tell his people 
that they have had a great victory in this war, and he has not been able to do that. Yes, there's a lot of disinformation. Yes, he controls the media. But what a lot of experts uh, say is that he is looking to that day to be able to, to, be able to do that and to, and to be able to show momentum. And, uh, you know, the question is how long you're beginning to see. It's, it's taken a while, sort of surprisingly how long. Uh, it's, it's taken a surprisingly long time for these sanctions to actually set in and start really damaging the uh, the Russian economy in ways that affect average people. But that's beginning to happen. I think the mayor of, of Moscow said that Moscow alone uh, is going to lose 200,000 uh, jobs. And uh, you're, you're hearing other reports like that. So the pressure is rising for Putin. Um, and so I think the hope is that for Putin and for um, is that he'll be able to show real progress. Otherwise, you wonder if he's going to start looking for uh, some kind of escape route here. Now, maybe I'm being overly optimistic. Either that uh, or or es- further escalation. Meanwhile, the pressure is rising on our on our guest today, Chalet and Blinken, because as the war drags on, the diplomatic task before them grows only harder. And that's because the in the initial surge of support for Ukraine, there was a wide global consensus that gave the room for the the sanctions to work and with a vast number of countries throughout the world supporting Ukraine. As the war drags on, as the economic implications, not just for Russia, but for Europe and for the rest of the world also begins to hit, many of those countries may begin to kind of peel off from the coalition or seek individual advantage in this kind of shifting environment. And so for Blinken and Chalet, the task of keeping that coalition together is going to only grow harder and harder and harder as this war drags on. Well, if that's the case, it does, you know, circle back to the question I was asking, what is, what is our strategy at this point uh, to, to, to put an end to this? I mean, when you see, you know, horrible war crimes on TV hour after hour and, you know, we'll press Chalet on this like, OK, do you have any route that can put an end to this in the short term, because otherwise you're looking at a lot of pain and suffering for the Ukrainian people over a long period of time before sanctions really have their impact. I mean, the end game clearly is going to have to be a diplomatic settlement. But the question but is... But you don't hear them talking about it. It's, it's right. barely mentioned right. but, these days. Right. But diplomacy is going to have to flow from whatever the military outcome is. And so the question is... There won't be a military outcome. That's the problem. Stalemate. We're talking a war of attrition that can be a... Yeah, stalemate well, no, may be exactly well, the right Well, word. no, no, deci- no, military out- no exactly. decisive military outcome, like a victory. We're not, going to ta- we're not going to be seeing the Russians or the Ukrainians surrendering unconditionally. That's not how this is going to play out. If it's a war of attrition, uh, the question is how much destruction, how many casualties can either side absorb? And then it's going to get very tricky and very tricky for the Biden administration, because at some point, the question is going to be, what are the Ukrainians willing to accept after all of this terrible uh, destruction, after all of these war crimes and civilian deaths and the destruction of so many of their of their cities? Will they be willing to accept even giving, even even allowing the Russians keep uh, Crimea? I mean, that becomes a tougher issue. 
And so what I think it will be tough for people like Derek Chalet and his boss, uh, Anthony Blinken, down the road is whether there is a cleavage between what the United States thinks should happen and what the Ukrainians are willing to, to give up in terms of giving up more territory, in terms of the kinds of concessions that the Ukrainians might have to make to get to a peace deal. Let me just put a finer point on the kind of potentially fraying global coalition about this, which is that the United States and Ukraine may be kind of joined at the hip in terms of their their goals and negotiating tactics and, and strategies. But considering that in vast swaths of Western Europe, things are in flux. Berlin and, and Germany face a winter next at the end of this year. Um, without access potentially to a substantial amount of their their energy. So they face a very cold winter potentially in front of them. France is on the bubble this weekend in terms of potentially electing someone who's previously been pro-Putin. And meanwhile, in the Middle East, the vast majority of food and grain imports from the Middle East come from Ukraine. So we're talking about starvation and cold for the other members of the international alliance and whether or not they are willing to continue exporting to Ukraine and willing to sustain sanctions and sustain kind of a, a unified front against Russia is really going to grow harder and, and harder by the way, as this year goes on. And by the way, Russia exports a huge amounts of the of the world's grain as well and is under uh, sanctions. So, so there is going to be much more pressure uh, and it's going to be much more difficult, as you say, to, to keep that coalition together. The one thing that will that will help in keeping it together, I think, uh, are these horrible war crimes uh, that are that are being committed by the by the Russians that have uh, shocked. But uh, when the world. we say war of attrition, which is what this is looking like, you know, the two historical examples, modern history, that one thinks of is Vietnam which was what, you know, uh, we sent in, we started sending in troops in 1961 under well, the Kennedy Fu administration, was, was took us till Nixon, 1973, yeah. before we pulled out and then Afghanistan for the Russians, right? Well, you know, for the Russians first, 1980 was that they invaded. It took them until 1989 before they pulled out. And the United States in Afghanistan, 2001 to last year. So these things can go on for a very long time. A depressing thought. Before we get to Chalet, I heard talk that you folks might have some thoughts about the mask mandate coming off. I don't know if you're uh, you're out in California, Clydeman. Are you um, flying back mask well, free I, or I will flew, you be wearing I flew, we, we flew out yeah. here fully masked and uh, We'll have to see whether we uh, we unmask ourselves uh, on on the way back. You know, there's. I was online today looking at some of these uh, viral videos. People who were on American Airlines, uh, major airlines, who got the news uh, while they were on the plane uh, that the mask uh, mandate um, had been lifted, and you know they were throwing their masks off. Uh, they were uh, celebrating. Uh, there was uh, one video of a. Uh, flight attendant who was uh, walking down the aisle uh, with a garbage bag collecting uh, masks and singing a song about about uh, the un uh, the the great unmasking um, liberation day. and you know you, you <laughs> liberation day. and you know you can understand uh, why uh, and and my sense is this is not um, this may look to some people like like uh, people some people may see this through a political lens uh, but I don't think so I think there's a 
consensus out there that after all of this, you know, all of this time, um, there, there's something symbolic in uh, taking off of masks that maybe we're finally moving beyond this a terrible pandemic and all of the the restrictions uh, that have uh, come with it. Nevertheless, there are people um, who, you know, I think rightfully are going to have concerns about this, particularly people who are immunocompromised and uh, could be sitting next to, uh, you know, very sick uh, individuals. And, you know, as a society, I think we're just... uh, going to have to grapple with that and, and figure it out. I don't think we're, we're going back. I think this is an inflection point in, in this pandemic. All for a single federal judge. You want to talk about well, the Well, yeah, I was just going to say for the, you know, for, the, ruling, for yeah. the avoidance of any doubt, this decision was not based in any way, shape or form on science or on what the scientists or doctors are saying about the the future of the pandemic and the usefulness of wearing masks or not wearing masks. It was a decision made by one district court judge in Florida who decided on an interpretation of the Public Health Services Act of 1948 and the meaning of the word sanitation within one of those things. Uh, as a as a legal decision, it's pretty poor. And it also pretty significantly ties the hands of the CDC in dealing with any and all future public health issues. It was a, a pretext uh, that I think much of the country was looking for to make this decision. I think yeah. the country was was ready for it. And look, you didn't see the White House say that they were going to uh, challenge the decision, uh, ap- appeal. Uh, they immediately said the TSA was no longer going to enforce uh, the mandate, and they they could have challenged it if they'd wanted to, and they and they didn't. No, because the that, politics of I it think is, is yeah. But is, I think that speaks it's volumes. Too dicey, right? Yeah, politics yeah. for the White House, but it yeah. is it's interesting. It's still a bad legal decision, just it, 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 for the it record. Is, <laughs> it is still yeah. interesting that a 33-year-old federal judge appointed by Donald Trump, who was rated not qualified by the ABA, essentially set national policy, not essentially, did set national policy on one of the touchiest and most sensitive you know, public health issues. But as a, as, a, as a legal matter, Victoria... Does a single federal district judge's decision, is that controlling authority for the whole country? Okay, so this is this is actually one of those big issues right now, which is whether or not a national injunction that's entered by a district court judge in one state can actually, you know, is actually valid. And until, you know, maybe about 24 hours ago, you would have heard a lot of conservatives and a lot of people, justices on the Supreme Court, Justice Thomas amongst them, railing against the use of national injunctions by district court judges and questioning whether or not that's within the authority of a district court judge. Now that a national injunction has been issued by a conservative justice, a conservative judge regarding masks, you don't hear that sort of going on, uh, that, that sort of debate happening very much. I think that most people would tend to believe that a district court judge does under certain set of circumstances have the authority to impose a, a national injunction, but it may be that they're doing it a little bit more than than uh, than they should. Well, it's something that definitely affects all people, certainly all airplane travelers, but we got lots to talk about with our guest, Derek Chalet. So let's get to it. Mm-hmm. 
We are now joined by Derek Chalet, the counselor at the State Department, one of the top advisors to Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken. Mr. Chalet, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks. It's great to be with you all. So we want to talk first and foremost about Ukraine. Of course, uh, the Russians appear to have started a new offensive to take full control of the eastern region of the country. A lot of talk about what more the United States and Western allies could do to stop the Russians in Ukraine. One of the uh, president's uh, closest senators, Chris Coons of Delaware, on the Sunday talk shows, said the United States needs to do more if Vladimir Putin, who has shown just how brutal he can be, is allowed to just continue to massacre civilians, to commit war crimes without the West coming more forcefully to his aid. I deeply worry what's going to happen next is we will see Ukraine turn into Syria. Is he right? And if so, what more can the United States and its Western allies do to help the Ukrainians? Sure. And again, thanks for having me. Um, we should do more and we are doing more. I think it's important, though, to level set on, on what's happening right now. I mean, since the invasion, since February 24th, the United States has committed $2.5 billion in security assistance to Ukraine. And that's on top of close to a billion dollars uh, that was provided prior to the invasion in assistance to Ukraine. That nearly matches the, in, the assistance we provided to Ukraine, security assistance in the previous eight years. So this is a tremendous amount of capability, military capability going into Ukraine, some of the most sophisticated weapons we have, we the United States. It's also important to note that we're working closely with our allies and partners in their own support for Ukraine. And so the United States has provided about $2.5 billion since February 24th. The European Union combined has provided a couple billion dollars in security assistance as well. And the kinds of assistance we're providing evolves with the, the as the fight evolves, right? Where when we were, when Kyiv was surrounded and we were worried about Russian armored columns lining up to try to encircle Kyiv, there was a premium put on Javelin anti-tank missiles, uh, for example. Those are still very important, but now in, in the latest package that was announced last week of another $800 million, that's being the focus now is on the fight that's in the east as the Russian forces are, have withdrawn from around Kyiv and are now consolidating in, in the east, particularly artillery, armored vehicles, ISR capability, things of that nature. So the president has been very clear, we're going to do as much as we possibly can on our own, but importantly with our allies and partners to help Ukraine defend itself and defeat Russia ultimately. That's one piece of it. The other piece of it, though, is what we're doing to try to punish and isolate Russia. And uh, the, the sanctions that we, along with over 30 other countries on four continents that, have, that have, uh, we have launched against Russia, are having an effect. And they will have an effect, even greater effect over time, as the effect of these sanctions really sinks in. And particularly the, the, the difficulty that Russians will have to borrow money to import key products, to import key components of products, which are going to make it harder for them to manufacture things like automobiles or to resupply their own military. So all of those things are going to have an effect over time as well. So President Biden's been very clear that U.S. troops are not going to be directly involved in Ukraine. However, we are doing a lot and we're going to do more. 
Let me ask you, uh, actually, I've got two questions. One, I want to get to sanctions in a second. But first, we're hearing that the Ukrainians are already putting up a spirited defense in the east, but it's very early. The Russians obviously have regrouped. They're pouring in you know, a lot more forces. It's, it's very different terrain, not the kind of urban terrain uh, that, that was a you know, problematic for the Russians. How does the United States government assess government assess uh, the Ukrainian military's ability to uh, defend its territory uh, in the east? And what do you think this battle is going to look like compared to what we've seen so far? Well, clearly the Ukrainians has sh- have shown that they have a lot of capability, that they've got a lot of fight in them, and they're a fairly effective fighting force. It's important to note that they have been at war in the Donbass since 2014. It's a war that has been largely out of the headlines here in the United States, except for occasional flare-ups here and there. But the Russian-backed troops in the Donbass have been fighting the Ukrainians along a line of control since Russia's initial invasion of Ukraine in 2014. So Ukraine's military has got a lot of experience. Uh, Now, this is going to be a hard fight, and Russia has consolidated a lot of power in the East, and they have also learned a lot of lessons in terms of their mistakes made early on in the invasion. So we expect it to be a tough fight. The Ukrainians expect it to be a tough fight. We're talking to the Ukrainians all the time. The Secretary of State, my boss, Tony Blinken, talks to his counterpart, the foreign minister of Ukraine, either on the phone or they see each other in person weekly since this invasion. Same with our colleagues at the Pentagon and at the White House talking to their counterparts. So we're in sort of real time, really trying to get getting an understanding of what the Ukrainians need and their assessment of the fight. And that then enables us to, as, as resources become available, that then we can move as quickly as we can to get them the military capability that we need and, the, and also the information that they need. And we've been intelligence sharing with them as well. Let me just just a very quick follow up on sanctions, which which you raised and our, our efforts to squeeze the Russian economy uh, and put pressure on Putin. And as we speak today, the Europeans are still importing gas and oil uh, from Russia. I think I read uh, that that translates into something like eight, uh, $800 million a day for Russia, uh, which is helping Putin prop up his economy. The Europeans are talking about um, imposing sanctions on gas and energy. Where does that stand? And can the West really do what it needs to do in terms of squeezing the Russian economy without the Europeans getting on board with energy sanctions? Yeah, Dan, it's a great question. And it's a really, it's a tough issue, right? Because you, uh, the Europeans, as we all know, rely heavily on, on, on Russia for energy. I was with Secretary Blinken the week before last in Brussels for a NATO meeting as well as a, a G7 meeting. And it's quite clear that our European colleagues feel quite strongly that they need to wean themselves off their reliance on Russian energy. And they are taking steps to do so. Now, this is moving an aircraft carrier. This is, uh, you have to take four degree turns. Uh, You can't do a a 50 degree turn, right? Because it's going to take a time. I believe that they are committed to doing this. Some European countries have already taken tough steps to address their reliance on Russian energy. So for example, Germany, which had this pipeline called Nord Stream 2 underway, it was not yet, uh, gas was not yet flowing through it, but they have suspended that project indefinitely now at great cost to themselves, billions and billions of dollars it cost themselves for suspending that. It was US policy for many years for, we didn't like that pipeline. We thought it was a mistake for Germany to, to only increase its reliance on Russian energy. But the fact that they've made that decision quickly shows that they're willing to pay a price, pay a hefty price 
So over time, I, I think that the Europeans are going to decouple themselves from Russian energy, and, and that is a massive geostrategic shift. I mean, the, the, the consequences of that, of that really cannot be understated because Russia's main card for the last decade plus has been as an energy supplier. And if it loses Europe as a, its primary market, that's going to have devastating costs on Russia's economy. And it's going to be much harder than Russia thinks to find customers to replace Europe on that market. China is not going to happen anytime soon, despite a lot of talk. There's just not the infrastructure to get the energy from Russia to China the way that there's the pipeline infrastructure between Russia and Europe right now. So I think Europe has taken some, some significant steps generally on the sanctions, but I think particularly on energy and gas, they're, they're headed in a direction where we're, we're seeing that slow decoupling take place. But it's not an on-off switch. I mean, we, un we understand the challenges of high energy prices here in the United States, clearly, and President Biden has made some important, taken some important steps to try to address our own concerns about energy prices. But Europe's feeling that times 10 because of their, their, the greater reliance they have on Russia for energy. As the war drags on and possibly goes on for a considerable period of time, what is going to happen to the global consensus regarding Russia? More particularly, there's kind of increasing evidence that it may be fraying. In March, when the United Nations voted to condemn Russia's invasion, there were 141 nations voting in favor of it. Just earlier this month, when the United Nations voted regarding Russia's membership in the Human Rights Commission, the number of nations voted in favor of kicking Russia out had dropped to 93. That's a pretty significant drop in terms of the kind of global consensus against Russia? Are you worried about the long-term prospects? So, Victoria, I'm actually not worried. I mean, I think that, that the fact that Russia got kicked out of the Human Rights Council is very significant. They're only the second country in the history of the UN Human Rights Council to have been kicked out that way. Libya is the only other country that has had that distinction. And uh, this is gonna be a long struggle, no doubt about it. And as Russia throws curveballs at us, as uh, we all have to grapple with the economic consequences of the sanctions, and as the violence in Ukraine continues, it, there's no doubt we are gonna continue to have to work every minute of every day to keep the consensus together. But I have been struck that how little evidence I have seen, uh, and I'm either meeting in person or talking with uh, colleagues from around the world, uh, either myself or with, with the Secretary of State or others here in the department, the, the hardening of the consensus really against Russia and what they're doing. Look, the facts on the ground don't help Russia's cage must. And as we've, we saw the horrors in Bucha a few weeks ago, and I think as we see What's happened in Mariupol, which is the city that's currently under tremendous siege, uh, we're going to see further crimes against humanity, further evidence of atrocities, and it's going to make it's going to further isolate Russia. It's going to make it's going to create higher costs for countries to do business with Russia, and that's why I think in many ways Putin has already lost. I mean, this 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 is a he's got a country that now. Is not a very attractive partner to many countries. Its economy is not going to be worth much. Its military is it doesn't have quite the same reputation that it did several months ago. Um, and there's just higher reputation costs for for dealing with Russia now. And so it, you know we're only a couple months into this, but I think the long term trajectory here seems to be a, a pretty grim one. If if you're Russia, well, in the matter of a, about a month. The kind of the global consensus lost 50, almost 50 votes. So almost 50 nations 
peeled off from that consensus. That's not necessarily the trajectory that I think you're hoping for. Yeah, again, it's not a quite an apples to apples comparison in the two votes. I mean, just because there are some countries, there's a, there's an ongoing investigation of atrocities uh, in Ukraine. Some countries abstained because they said they wanted that investigation to be completed before they voted one way or the other. Our argument, which prevailed ultimately with the majority, was that we see plenty of evidence on the ground of atrocities. We actually don't need to wait for this investigation to be over to judge whether or not Russia should remain on the council. So, again, some of that is, is a technicality. I I'm just telling you, my view is that, as then from the conversations I've been having, I find that the consensus is hardening. No question, this is tough, and that we have to continue to. I mean, our job here at the State Department is to be talking to counterparts around the world all day, every day, about a whole variety of issues, but particularly this one right now, and and to continue to work to maintain that consensus. But I've been struck that over in the last two months, I've only experienced it hardening rather than fraying. And there are a lot of people predicting at the beginning of this crisis, before this crisis, that Europe would never sign up for major sectoral sanctions, that they would never you know, go after oligarchs at the way they're going out. I mean, the, the steps the Brits are taking, for example, to go after oligarchs and seize assets of people who have made many people in London very, very rich over the last several decades is quite impressive what the, what the British government is doing. And many other governments are doing similar things. There were people who predicted that the Germans would never get rid of Nord Stream 2 because they were too spent too much money on it already, and they did the first weekend. So this is not this. I'm not. I don't want to spike the football. So I'm not saying where this is done because it, it's going to take a lot of work. But just where from where I sit right now, I, I do, I do remain confident in that consensus sticking. So you're at the State Department. The traditional job of the State Department is diplomacy. In this discussion, you've talked about military weapons to Ukraine, sanctions against the Russians punishing Vladimir Putin. No mention of trying to negotiate a ceasefire or bringing the parties together at the negotiating table. Uh, is diplomacy effectively off the table at this point? Yeah, Mike, it's it's a good question. I, I think it's Important to remind everybody that, uh, well, first, we fully agree that the job of the State Department is diplomacy, and we very much believe in diplomacy and part of one of the kind of foundational principles of the Biden administration's approach to the world is to put diplomacy back front and center. And boy, we tried really hard before the invasion to find a diplomatic way out of this. And, and Secretary Blinken in particular was uh, spending most of the time either in the air uh, on his on his way to Europe or on the phone uh, to try to find a diplomatic uh, way out of this. And we offered the Russians a large number of formats and venues to try to talk through a way forward without an invasion, making very clear that if they decided to go down the path that they were clearly intent on going down all along, that they would have to pay a, a steep price for that. Look, there are diplomatic talks underway that in between the, the Russians and the Ukrainians. Uh, they have not progressed uh, in, in, a, in a, to this point in a way that I'm, I'm optimistic about having some sort of diplomatic solution. I think the Russians are v- seem very intent on basically uh, uh, bringing as much violence to Ukraine as they possibly can. I wish I saw an opening for diplomacy right now, but I don't. Uh, that said, we're doing whatever we can to support the Ukrainians in their own diplomatic efforts, and, and we have to be guided 
by them in many ways. This is their fight and we're there to support them as they try to defend their country and defend their sovereignty. If I could just break in, but in in light of, you know, the horrors that we're seeing on TV every day and the crimes against humanity, the war crimes going on and the brutality of this war, it does raise the question of what the end game here or what the strategy here is. You've talked about over time sanctions may really hurt the Russians and force them to take a different tack. But over time, while we're seeing war crimes in front of us, doesn't seem like a, a particularly palatable solution here. It's very difficult. I mean, again, because that, that's also on one side. I mean, this is the Russians perpetrating these acts, right? Perpetrating these atrocities. So that's why our position has been we are going to do whatever we can to support the victims of this invasion, the Ukrainians, and support them politically, support them economically, and support them in, in, in the fight. Indirectly, because we're not going to ourselves get directly involved, but uh, given the, the unprecedented amount of security assistance we have provided them in the last two months, that's on top of the assistance we provided them previously. Our efforts to work with allies and partners around the world to provide for them to provide their own uh, degree of assistance so the Ukrainians can first defend themselves and then take back territory. That, Look, if that there's any, if there's any diplomatic way out here off ramp, you know, it, it is that there would be some acceptance of the Russian annexation of Crimea, some sort of perhaps a referendum in Donbass to let the, the people decide which direction they want to go in exchange for a halt to the Russian offensive. Yeah, those that, are the sorts of things they're talking about. Uh, you know, is, that, is that something the United about? States could endorse? accept the Crimea annexation and accept the possibility that the Russians will play a role in Donbass in the eastern region of the country. Yeah. Well, first, it's not clear to me what the Ukrainians are going to accept. And I think first and foremost, we're going to, this is not for us to dictate the terms to the Ukrainians on what they should accept in terms of defending their own country. So we're there to support them on this, meaning that that they're, they're going to have to take decisions as a sovereign state about what they would accept. I think there's every indication that I have that I've seen that they're not, uh, you know, they are the victims here. They they are, they are they are facing down an aggressor that let's let's be clear is was interested in in much more than the Donbass or having countries formally recognize Crimea as part of Russia. I mean, Vladimir Putin's goal here was to take down the Ukrainian government. I mean, that's why troops were surrounding Kiev, not because of trying to to. Uh, uh, harden their position in Donbass. I think that the, this what's happening now in Donbass is is a fallback position uh, by Putin to try to find you know, manufacture some kind of face saving way that he can justify an invasion that's brought tremendous cost to his country. I mean, there's many ordinary Russians who have to be asking themselves, how is this making their lives better in any way? How is uh, this helping put food on their tables, educate their kids, give themselves a better opportunity? And as I said, the pain they're going to feel economically and, and in terms of their isolation, their inability to travel, the fact that the ambitions they have for themselves and their society are going to be are going to be stunted because of Putin's decisions. This for the long term for Russia, this is this was a very, very bad set of decisions. I think Putin made these decisions. I mean, he didn't try to rally public opinion to back this. He thought that that this was going to be a cakewalk. He thought that the uh, the Ukrainians would fold 
pretty quick. And I uh, think, I guess he thought he didn't need to build much public support for this, but now they're in a much different fight that they anticipated. Um, so we, you know, as they say, we, I mean, just to follow, finish up on this piece is that we, you know, we are act, we are talking to the Ukrainians all the time about the negotiations that they are conducting and trying to give them our best advice and counsel. At the same time, though, making sure they know we've got their back and that we're going to do whatever we can to try to address that the needs that they express to us in terms of their requirements to defend themselves. A couple of weeks ago, the uh, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson uh, visited Kiev, uh, took that now famous walk with uh, uh, with Zelensky out in the in the streets of of, of the capital. The Spanish Prime Minister uh, Pedro Sanchez is reportedly uh, planning a trip to to Ukraine. The White House has made clear that President Biden uh, has no plans to go to Ukraine, but there have been indications that the U.S. may send a uh, high-level official there. Can you shed any light uh, on those plans? And um, I'm curious, your, does your boss, um, Secretary of State Blinken, want to go to Kiev? Well, uh, I have no announcements to make at this time. <laughs> but um, look, we're, we're looking at this really closely. Obviously, we're taking note of uh, other officials that are going into Ukraine, whether it's Lviv or Kiev. When uh, I was with the secretary uh, the week before last in Brussels, we were meeting with the EU high representative uh, for foreign policy, uh, Burrell, Josep Burrell, who a few days after we saw him, he, he went into Kyiv. Uh, the U.S. currently doesn't have any presence in Ukraine. We've, we've moved all of our diplomats out into Poland. We had a presence in Lviv, which is in the far western part of Ukraine. We're, we're taking a close look at the security situation, which is you know, our foremost responsibility is to make sure anything we do, whether when it involves our diplomats or uh, uh, U.S. officials, is that they can be safe and secure. So we're looking at our, at our what our presence looks like, but also the, the possibility for any visits down the road. But nothing has been decided or, or sorted out yet. And a lot of this will depend on, the, obviously, the situation on the ground. I mean, just the other day, we saw a missile attack uh, around Lviv, that there had been some time we'd seen Russian take a shot, Russia take a shot at Lviv. So that's got a factor into our thinking as we're thinking about uh, our engagement. But in the meantime, I mean, again, I, 10 days ago in Brussels, we saw the Ukrainian foreign minister. Uh, we're, we are talking to them all the time at all levels of our government. Um, so, but for, certainly, you know, what, understand the the symbolic importance of visits uh, to to Kiev. One very just very quick follow up on on the presence of Americans in Ukraine because I I, I saw you know we've sent these howitzers, uh, these big guns to Ukraine, but the Ukrainians uh, have not had not been trained to use them. But I understand the military is now the U.S. military is training or will be training Ukrainians to use those uh, those howitzer guns. Where does that take place in Ukraine? Where do they train them? I know this is maybe a question. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to tell you specifically where, but it doesn't take place in Ukraine. It does not. Um, okay. Now, and again, I just for the benefit of the listeners, like we've been training Ukrainians for eight years. I mean, this it's the idea. You know, we had a we the United States, NATO had training of Ukrainians in all in all matters of of military affairs, not just how to use Howards, not Howardsers, but other capabilities, plus you know how to budget and make themselves more 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 effective and capable. Uh, as an institution, we've been doing that for years. I think some of the benefits of that training, I don't want to claim full credit, but some of the benefits of that we've seen unfold on the battlefield over the last couple of months. Uh, the Ukrainians have a more professional, capable, modern military than they had eight years ago in 2014. 
So how critical is the outcome of the election in France this weekend to maintaining the United US EU NATO position on this war? Well, look, I think any election, the outcome is going to be really important. I can't prejudge what the outcome is going to be. All I can say is is Macron has been a very effective partner in these efforts, and his team has been quite effective with us and with others. I, I must confess, I haven't followed as closely to know what if there's uh, candidate positions that are that are appreciably different between the two uh, in the runoff. So, but uh, obviously, France has been and their role has been a critical partner, and their role in this has been absolutely essential. So from your perspective right now, you have no reason to believe that Le Pen would be a less effective partner to the United States were she elected? Yeah. I mean, I don't, as I said, I haven't followed. I know a lot about her past. I don't know what she said currently on this. All I can say is France has been a very effective partner up to now. And so what we want certainly is for whomever the next leader of France is, for that government to be as effective of a partner as they've been over the last several months and before that, of course, uh, as this crisis was evolving. Although Macron didn't exactly endorse the president's comments about Putin and war crimes and Putin having to go. In fact, he actually tried to, to differentiate himself from those. Comments. Yeah, look, they were both expressing, I think, their personal positions. I mean, the president was very clear. He was not acting as a lawyer, making a formal legal determination on genocide. He was, you know, saying, uh, you know, from his personal perspective, what he's been seeing on the ground and matching that with what Putin, how Putin talks about Ukraine and the idea that he doesn't see Ukraine as sort of a natural state in any way, but as but some sort of complete fabrication. Uh, that was his view. So I don't, I, we didn't make, frankly, much of that here in terms of, I, I can say that in all of our interactions with our French colleagues from the president on down have been very constructive and productive. And speaking, going back, Mike, to your question on diplomacy, I mean, Macron has been very active on the diplomatic front, hasn't gotten us anywhere by his own admission. It hasn't gotten anywhere. But, you know, there's been no shortage of efforts to try to come up with some diplomatic solution here, whether it's Ukrainians themselves or Macron or others. What I wanted to ask is when the when the sort of smoke clears uh, and the fighting eventually ends, we don't know how long that will take. Hopefully sooner rather than later. But what, yeah, what is what is the geop soon, what is the geopolitical situation in this part of the world look like? I know I'm asking you to kind of prognosticate here, but is the State Department already you know looking at a new reality in um, in this part of the world? Um, clearly, already there's a larger NATO presence in, in Eastern Europe. Uh, you're, there's talk about Sweden and Finland uh, joining the alliance. But what does the, the sort of the, the new rules-based order uh, look like after we get beyond this war? Yeah, that's it, a great question. It's something we are actively thinking about, and, and our thinking on this is not fully cooked yet. And this is a lively debate and discussion outside of government as well. And so, you know, I am, I am a, a, a vigorous consumer of what people are writing, you know, in journals and op-eds and blogs about what this should look like, because we do feel like that we're at this in this kind of post-World War II, 46, 47, post-Cold War, immediate post-Cold War, early 90s moment, right? And as you've noted, in some ways, Russia, we've already seen a big strategic shift. I mean, if you think of Putin's goals to divide the U.S. and Europe, to weaken NATO, to, to kind of build up a sphere of influence around uh, Russia, 
you know, he's only pushed Ukraine further away. And the idea that Ukraine and Russia will have a close, warm relationship anytime soon is fanciful. NATO is only stronger today. People are saying it's as unified as it's ever been since the end of the Cold War. And there's a prospect of it getting larger with, with the discussion underway in Finland and Sweden about their possibility of joining. And uh, the, the transatlantic alliance is more broadly beyond NATO is stronger. And so, you know, look, I think that, and Russia, by the way, is weaker across the board by every single measurement. So that's, this, this is a strategic game changer. Yeah, and because it's it, and it's reverberating beyond Europe, and this is a, a point we frequently make. This is, first and foremost, a crisis for Ukraine and and a, and a security crisis in Europe, the largest since World War II. But it's really a global crisis, and you know the the response has been global, and that you see countries that have a long history of a relationship with Russia that themselves are struggling a bit. I was in Vietnam a few weeks ago. Uh, Vietnam obviously has had for decades a very strong relationship with Russia and before that the Soviet Union. But at the same time, they're a country that themselves has been invaded multiple times by larger powers that are seeking to have their way with them and are struggling a bit with, with you know, what this means for them and don't like the fact that they're so closely associated with Russia right now in this crisis, have a long relationship with Ukraine as well. And so, you know, there, there's some opportunities here as well as we're sort of thinking of the of the geopolitical chessboard, and obviously the Russia-China issue, which we could do a whole, a whole a separate <laughs> podcast on. Let's do it next that, time. That, yeah, next time we'll come we'll come back and talk about that. But that's uh, something else that I think is is uh, obviously we're watching real closely and and is could completely change uh, you know the trajectory of the next couple of decades. Since you mentioned it, I just want to squeeze this last quick question in. You know, you mentioned famous last the, the, question. <laughs> I promise. You mentioned that the Russians have not aggressively used their cyber capabilities so far. What's your sense of why not? What is the thinking within the United States government as to why they haven't done that? Yeah, I, you know, I don't have a good explanation for that, Dan. I really don't. I mean, I think uh, I, I. A colleague of, of ours, uh, Lisa Monaco, who's the deputy attorney general, was on 60 Minutes on Sunday. It's something I would recommend everybody watch. It was really interesting uh, with her and Jen Easterly, who's one of our leading cybersecurity experts on. And Lisa had this, had this, and she said there, there's all sorts of sort of uh, probings going on. It's the equivalent of someone walking around a neighborhood and like checking the car doors of parked cars to see if anything's open, to see if there's a way they can get in. And so our experts are seeing a lot of that kind of activity. We have not seen the massive cyber attack on Ukraine or ourselves that you may, we were in many ways expecting. It may come. I mean, that's one of it's the nature of the business. I can't explain whether it's capabilities or intent or capacity. I just I don't know the answer to that. But it's something I think it's very important that we all remain vigilant uh, to be on the lookout for. Councillor Cholet, I want to thank you uh, for joining us and sharing your insights. Uh, and um, as Dan mentioned, we definitely will want to have you back for more extensive discussions about all sorts of matters around the world. Thanks. Well, hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for doing this. And uh, yeah, I look forward to coming back. Thank you. Thank you.